Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of Podcast 360, your go-to resource for medical news and clinical updates. I'm your moderator, Lee Precopio, with Consultant 360. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, approximately 7% of children and adolescents have asthma. Therefore, it is critical that healthcare providers stay up to date with the latest research and guidelines on managing this demanding condition. Joining us today to further discuss the management of asthma in pediatric populations is Teresa Gilbert, who is a professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Cincinnati and the director of the Asthma Center at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. Dr. Gilbert recently presented on this topic at the American Academy of Pediatrics 2021 conference. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Gilbert. To begin, could you give us a brief overview of your session? Sure. This session, I think, is very pertinent to pediatricians. It's really discussing the six topics that were updated in the NHLBI 2020 guideline update. Basically, five of the updates were pertinent to children, and those included adjustable medication dosing and recurrent wheezing and asthma, the use of long-acting anti-muscarinic agents, otherwise known as LAMAs, in asthma management as add-on to inhaled corticosteroids, fractional exhaled nitric oxide in diagnosis, medication selection, and monitoring treatment response in asthma, remediation of indoor allergens such as house dust mites and pets in asthma management, and then the role of immunotherapy in the management of asthma. How does the latest update to the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute's asthma management guidelines differ from previous guidelines? So I think there's a a few key things that would institute changes in practice. One would be consider using adjustable medication dosing at the start of a respiratory tract infection in zero to four-year-olds that have intermittent asthma or as needed concomitant inhaled corticosteroids and short-acting beta agonists in those that are 12 and up with mild persistent asthma. A second change in practice would be consider using daily and as needed combination that would be inhaled corticosteroids in low dose in combination with famotidol, which has a quick onset long-acting albuterol in five to 11-year-olds and 12 and older with moderate persistent asthma. And that would translate into steps three and four. And sort of the last, I think, big change would be consider adding long-acting muscarinic agents to inhaled corticosteroids and long-acting beta agonists in those 12 and above with uncontrolled moderate to severe asthma. What are some common pitfalls when it comes to the chronic management of asthma in pediatric patients? There's kind of a couple myths out there, whether you're looking at NHLBI or the global international asthma guidelines that really stress that you don't need to wait to some arbitrary age, such as age six, to decide that somebody has asthma. Certainly in the zero to four age group, we do have patients with preschool asthma. And typically what that looks like is looking for a recurrent pattern of coughing and wheezing that are commonly triggered by viral upper respiratory infections or exposure to allergens such as pets or spring and fall season with allergic rhinitis type symptoms. 
And then they have other risk factors for asthma, such as a mom or dad with asthma. They already have sensitization to either a food or air allergen. They have a history of eczema. All these are sort of common risk factors. So you're looking for a recurrent pattern of symptoms and then having a child that has one or more of the risk factors that I just mentioned. So sometimes in practice, I see pediatricians sort of want to wait till a certain age before they quote unquote label somebody with asthma. But honestly, the insurance companies treat wheezing, recurrent bronchiolitis, so on, you know, chronic cough, they, they code that under the same ICD-10 code as asthma. So, you know, you're sort of denying the patient the diagnosis and not really saving them anything from an insurance risk standpoint. So I think that's a sort of a common myth the guidelines are quick to point out that there is a stepwise progression of treatment, even for the very youngest um, children that you're dealing with. And then the other thing I see is the other end of the spectrum, which is sort of an underappreciation of severe asthma and that there are new treatments available to treat severe asthmatics. So if you have a patient who's just not responding to sort of low to medium dose inhaled corticosteroids you know, with or without combination of a second controller, but just not responding in the way that you would expect, it, it might be time to sort of either expand your differential diagnosis. So is this truly asthma? You know, do they have reversibility on lung function tests? Do they seem to respond to oral corticosteroids and albuterol in the manner that you'd expect? Do they have other atypical symptoms like growth issues, pneumonias, sleep issues, reflux, um, heart disease, you know, some of the large deferential that can come with asthma? And then really thinking about trialing higher doses of medications and even considering biologic therapy in kids that are six and above. And certainly um, referral to a pulmonologist or an allergist would be indicated to expand on that differential and do more thorough testing, whether that be pulmonary function or bronchoscopy or allergy testing. So I would just encourage people not to give up if you have a patient that remains uncontrolled, you know, seeking to expand, you know, the differential, the evaluation, and also the management of those patients. Do any specific patient characteristics, such as age or race, influence how you manage chronic asthma in pediatric patients? Well, we certainly know that there's key risk factors associated with asthma. Um, I'll just speak to my own patient population. Certainly younger kids can be a challenging group to treat, especially if they don't have allergy yet. They don't always respond to traditional asthma therapies. And, and that is actually a characteristic that I see with older patients too. So if you're non-type 2, so you, you don't have that allergic inflammation like eosinophils, a higher exhaled nitric oxide, allergic sensitization, food allergy, eczema, non-atopic or non-allergic children tend to not have the robust response that we see with type 2 inflamed children. Um, so that population, there's sort of a a lack of great therapies. Um, hopefully in the future, we'll have some additional. So I think that's definitely one that I look for, you know, are they not allergic and then to try and problem solve what might work for that particular patient. I think another risk factor is, you know, children that come from economically disadvantaged neighborhoods, our backgrounds definitely can struggle with many, many items. So struggle with transportation to their doctor's visits, Often uh, the parents are holding down multiple jobs and it can make them very difficult to be able to come to clinic during clinic hours. 
you know, being able to get to the pharmacy to get their medications regularly. Sometimes they lose their insurance and have to apply for new insurance. Sometimes they live in dilapidated housing that's exposed to many irritants and allergens. Um, they can live close to highways and get exposed to pollution. You know, really looking at what they're exposed to environmentally, what they're exposed to psychosocially. So we know anxiety and depression can be overrepresented in, in patients with asthma and can definitely affect their asthma control. So thinking about sort of that child's stress and other, you know, psychosocial diagnoses that they may have, I think are also important things to consider when trying to control asthma. What are some clinical pearls you would give your peers for the long-term management of asthma in children and adolescents? This is one of the more common chronic diseases that we deal with in children. And I think the first pearl is that about 90% of children will respond to low to medium dose inhaled corticosteroid as sort of the first line therapy. But for the 10% that don't, I think it's time to really consider, is this truly asthma, doing a little investigation there, um, consider, you know, either higher doses of the medications or combinations of medications that haven't been tried, or even biologic therapy if they're six and above, and certainly having a low threshold to bringing in subspecialists if you have children that fit into that category. And since you've been in training, there's some exciting new medications that we do use in children that are, have been very effective. I've had patients tell me when they start biologic therapy that their life has changed. They're able to be active in the world and not missing school and the parents aren't missing work. So it can really be a game changer for kids with a lot of burden of disease. So I would just encourage people to consider, you know, referring these kids if they fall within that 10% of the population. Great. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Oh, thanks so much. I really appreciate uh, you inviting me and um, I'm hoping that people attend the session and get value from it.